Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a software company that enables life science companies to augment their teams with the right expertise at the right time in order to accelerate and de-risk the development of new therapies. Very excited to welcome Ibs Mamoun, the CEO and co-founder at AMO Pharma. Thanks for joining us today, Ibs. Thank you so much, Alok and Rahul. I'm very pleased to be here. So we'd love to just start off with a, a bit of a self-intro on yourself and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. So yeah, my name's Ibs Mahmood. I was born in the UK, a child to Indian immigrants. And my parents being Indian, they were very risk averse. So they said, what you're going to do at university is study to be a doctor. And that's a theme I'm going to come back to a lot uh, on this podcast. It's all about risk. It was born into me very early on. So um, yeah, I read medicine at Oxford. I did a bit of consulting. Neither of them sat very well with me, but I really started to enjoy myself when I got into finance and life science finance, um, doing deals for life science companies raising money, merging them, and all those things. But after several years of doing that, I wanted to do some of that myself. So I I got involved in a biotech, which we sold. And then I started a company called DrugDev, co-founded a company called DrugDev. And I want to talk about that a little bit because it sets us up very nicely for the sort of main act, which is what I'm doing right now. DrugDev was a software company in the business of automating clinical trials. When I set that up with with my co-founders, we were very much of the view that clinical trials were very inefficiently run. And that was no fault of anyone in the industry. It's just that you're essentially testing the crown jewels. You know, a, a big pharmaceutical company or a biotech company may have spent hundreds of millions of dollars to reach a promising life-saving medicine to the stage where it needs to start being tested in humans. The last thing they want to do is try something too new. They just want to do what they've always done before to make sure that they get a nice, clean result of did the drug work or not. Unfortunately, what that's meant is that the cost of running clinical trials has just gone up and up um, steadily over the years. I think the standard statistic is that the cost of running clinical trials has gone up 10x in the previous 30 years. That's extraordinary. When you think that in the last 15 or 20 years, we've had more exciting new medicines discovered than in all of human history before that. And the only thing stopping us from delivering these life-saving medicines and to create a lot of economic wealth for the pharma industry is the cost of testing them. And yet at the same time, the cost of testing them was extraordinarily high because the clinical trials operations industry has been very slow to adopt technology because it didn't want to take any risks. See, there you go, keep coming back to risk. So so drug dev was very much, okay, what can we do to bring technology to the clinical trials industry? And we knew that there's a lot of smart people in that industry, and we knew that they were keen to try technology. So how are we going to get them over this issue that they didn't want to try something new in case it didn't work? And so we did a couple of things to manage the risk. The first thing is we engaged with all of their customers. The customers of the clinical trials industries are the people who actually do the clinical trials with the patient, the clinical trial doctors, the investigators. So we initially engaged and we set up a website which allowed every clinical trial investigator in the world to advertise what kind of clinical trials they'd be like like to involved in. So for example, 
Dr. Alok Tai. I am based in Boston and I'd like to run MS studies. So we, we started with that. In that way, we got all the doctors in the world to sort of sign up to this global list of what kind of trials they want to do. Then what we did was we acquired companies who did particular parts of the clinical trial process fairly well. And we plugged them into their user base, which was the clinical trial doctors. So that when that particular company that did a particular part of the clinical trial process went and spoke to a major pharmaceutical company and said, could we do this for you? They had the massive advantage over their competitors that they were already plugged in to all of their users. And it worked very well. We were able to raise well over $50 million. We were able to do a number of acquisitions. And all of those acquisitions were supercharged by the fact that we plugged them into the users. And so their sales went very well. So wind forward seven or eight years from 2011, and that company was working for every single major pharma company apart from Bayer. We never got Bayer. <laughs> and we, we had major contracts with uh, Novartis and J&J. And you know, most importantly, I, I think we put a dent in the cost of running clinical trials. So the reason, and it ultimately got bought by IQVIA, who are a fabulous buyer because they're kind of everywhere and they were able to take our technology, apply it to their own clinical trials that they were running for other people, but also sell it as a standalone service like we were, but with incredible reach. In the last three years since it was acquired, I've been excited to watch from the sidelines as that technology just gets used everywhere. The theme very much of drug dev was how do we sell to a risk averse industry? And I think that philosophy serves us very, very well. So having had some success with drug dev, I thought it was finally time that we took some of our own molecules to the world um, instead of providing a service for other people with their own molecules. So we started a company, myself and a scientist called Dr. Mike Snape, called AMO Pharma. And you'll be unsurprised to hear that the whole philosophy behind AMO Pharma was about managing risk. Now, of course, we also wanted to go after diseases which had really big human impact. I mean, no one who's been through the medical process or just any kind of everyday person with a moral compass wants to produce medicines that really help people, right? That's obvious. It's almost cliche. So I'll take that as read. But I think the other thing that is interesting about AMO Pharma is our obsession with managing risk from the get-go. And we really took three approaches to managing risk from the very beginning of setting up AMO Pharma. The first thing we did, and I have to say, guys, I know your podcast is very much about what's the unique angle for this CEO. I think sometimes doing the sensible stuff well can be quite effective, yeah. <laughs> especially in Europe, where we, perhaps we don't have quite as much venture investment that, that you have in Boston. So I, I'm not ashamed to say that I don't think any of these three things are revolutionary, but I do think you put them all together and it really is quite a powerful risk profile. Um, so the first is go after orphan assets. Just very briefly, orphan drugs are, or orphan diseases are rare diseases. And all of the main drug regulators, like the Food and Drug Administration of the USA, give certain concessions for people developing medicines for these very rare diseases. And, and that's because they're trying to encourage people to develop medicines. And, and this is now a well-worn path. So the first thing we did is we went after orphan diseases. Second thing we did was we developed drugs which, without exception, have some human data. And, and that's because the number one reason, if you look at all the reasons that a drug fails during the drug development process, the number one reason is that there are side effects. 
So you might have a, a fabulous treatment for a certain type of cancer, but actually the effect on the cancer patient is so significant that it's not practical to actually give that patient that treatment, which is, which is heartbreaking. So what we did was we got a really good understanding of the biology of a particular rare disease. We then searched for molecules that had been through some testing in another disease and perhaps for other reasons weren't carried forward. And then we acquired that molecule to then test ourselves. So, you know, if, if you take the case of our lead molecule, we have 500 patients that have already taken that molecule. So we know it's safe. So that's the second strategy we use to manage risk, which is prior human history. And the third thing we did was we went after principally CNS and psychiatry diseases. And, and that's probably a more unusual way to manage risk. But the way that we see it is if you design a clinical trial well in psychiatry, it's easier to get to the things that really matter to the patient. It's easier to get a signal to show that your drug is working. So to sort of look at it on the flip side, if we were in the business of inventing a new blood pressure pill, it's very black and white. It either worked or it didn't work. In the case of a developmental condition, it's all about measuring these patients in just the right way to maximize the chance that, yes, you're accurately reflecting what's happening with that patient, but also maximizing the chance that you can actually get a successful clinical trial result. So, you know, one of the diseases that we're looking at is Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome is the most common genetic cause of intellectual disability in girls. And sadly, it not only causes intellectual disability and autism, it also causes a suppression of breathing and shortened lifespan. So what we've seen is that some clinical trials in that area have gone after measuring that breathing. And you can kind of say, well, that makes sense because that's a hard endpoint. But we actually think it doesn't make any sense because you're missing all of the other things that's going on with that young girl. You're missing you know, her ability to socially interact or her ability to tell you that she's in pain or use the toilet. So in collaboration with FDA, developed a composite endpoint that really measures the whole syndrome as opposed to one element of it that may or may not be particularly obvious in a certain patient. And in that way, you're much more likely to bring a drug to market that really matters to these patients, but you're also much more likely to have a successful clinical trial result. We're obsessed with risk. We set up AMO with risk in mind, orphan assets, prior human history, and a psychiatric focus. Great. Thank you, Ibs, for that background. Just out of curiosity, what's the internal threshold that you and your team have set around what is enough data and building confidence internally that this may work? What's the internal methodology that you've developed to make a decision about, hey, we should pursue this further or not? Have you, have you thematically seen any trends emerge for you guys? Right. I'm going to answer that in a slightly obtuse way. It, it, yeah. it, it depends on the indication. It, and so my view is you need to get people who are fanatical about those particular disease areas. If you look at our chief medical officer, Joe Horrigan, I mean, he actually sits on retsyndrome.org. He really, really cares about Rett syndrome. Mm. I, I don't know the exact number of years, but I want to say he's been in the Rett area for 20 years. I think it's also worth saying that I think all of us or most of us in the team, and we're only a small company of nine people. All of us have a personal connection. So a child or relative with a developmental disorder. Someone on the team knows a great deal about each of the indications we're in. And in most cases, most of us do. And as a consequence, we're able to really understand the significance of A, the safety profile, and B, the early clinical data. 
if you if you take the lead program that had been in 500 patients and had had no significant safety issue but importantly we could see how that safety profile would be reflected in myotonic dystrophy which is the target population because we really understood the safety challenges for folks with myotonic dystrophy because we had the people fanatical about it yeah so it's a slightly long-winded answer but yeah that, that, i think that's old-fashioned pharmaceuticals right it, you know 40 50 years ago you just had people at slightly smaller drug companies that they live that space. And I think the best big drug companies still do that and, yeah. and little drug companies. Yeah, it's an interesting way to build a very robust clinical package, but not have to be entirely reliant on data that you are generating, but rather take advantage of what other folks have done to potentially expedite your own clinical development timeline. So it makes total sense. You know, now going back to, so it's a team of nine people. You have several programs now that are in the clinic or approaching the clinic. That's a very lean team. Would love to perhaps dig into the philosophy that you all have around how work gets done at AMO Pharma with such a small team. And, you know, I'm sure you're, you're leveraging some software tools based on your prior experience. So what does that look like at AMO? So drug dev, I mean, you know, when it became part of IQV, I think ended up with about a thousand people. That, that means that, but I didn't know everybody, right? I, I think yeah. you, you stop knowing people around two or three hundred. The wonderful thing about having nine people is pretty much all discuss everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then what you do is, yeah, obviously everybody works hard, but you can identify the exact right person to use as a contractor to do that particular outsource function. Right. So sometimes it's just relatively straightforward CRO stuff. It's just boots on the ground. But other times, you know, we have found someone who has a exquisitely good understanding of a particular animal model and has always done that. And we can just dip into that person, pay them to do that service and then come back. And if you're a close knit team, it's fairly obvious who's going to do what, who's going to find who to deliver which part of that process. And it works very well. It's probably not scalable or isn't scalable. Like, I don't think we could become a large company. I don't think that's our objective. You know, we're all interested in bringing these medicines through the clinical development process and then handing them to a grown-up to sell to the world. So I'm sure we'll get bought by a mid-sized or major pharma company at some point. On that topic, given how, you know, the modern world is evolving, both in terms of financing of biotechs, as well as the value creation around clinical trials, would love to hear some of your recent experiences at AMO and how you've brought the capital to the table to sort of uh, get to the stage that you're at today. Absolutely. The people who are best at running any company are the ones who've screwed it up. <laughs> uh, and so I'll tell you our sad financing story and then I'll sort of reflect on it, make sort of assumptions about what might be best practice. Um, so look, we had a very interesting idea. We had a very good team. We had a bunch of assets ready to go into AMO Pharma back in 2015. And we had serious interest from a couple of traditional biotech venture capital firms. And we decided to turn that down because we got much better terms from a non-traditional life science investor. And in the end, that turned out to be a mistake. But we, we got investment from Woodford Investment Management. So that was backed by Neil Woodford. Neil Woodford was the fund manager at Invesco who'd made the decision to invest in drug dev and they made a good return. But while we were building drug dev, he went off and set up his own firm. And so we had a really good relationship with him. And Neil Woodford is an absolute gentleman and, and said, look, I'm very interested in supporting you. And he was incredibly supportive through the whole process. 
But because Woodford was not part of the sort of traditional uh, life science venture capital community, it wasn't easy for him to bring in follow-on capital for his companies. So had we gone for a traditional VC, I think it would have been relatively straightforward to get the next round and the next round. It's kind of a conveyor belt because there's a kind of a, a, a stamp of quality that comes from, I don't know, somewhere like Advent Life Sciences in London, where my brother happens to work. <laughs> you know, they do so much work when they get into companies that there are other companies that will go, well, that's, a, that's an Advent company. We'd like to do the next investment round. But we couldn't help ourselves. I mean, Woodford was very easy to work with, gave us very good terms and had a lot of money at that time. It was a very simple deal. If we delivered on the sort of phase two results, he would put in a second round and we could get our drugs all the way to market. And that almost worked, even though it was non-standard. As it is, it's, it's well covered in the press that although Neil Woodford made some really good stock picks, in my view, he didn't have the follow-on capital. And so Woodford Fund went into administration. So we ended up in quite a tricky spot and in the end actually ended up raising money from a family office. Uh, And they have been fantastic. But again, don't have the sort of traditional biotech brand. The good news this time, though, is we now have all the capital we need. So we've kind of not ended up in the traditional route at all but we are well-funded. We can take our lead program all the way through its phase three trial and to approval. That said, if you go the traditional way, you're on the conveyor belt and you can raise money from these various traditional investors. But if you get to a certain point, if you get to phase three and beyond, then the big life sciences funds will come in. And so we're having some great conversations with some of them at the moment, and we'll see where that goes. I think if if we can get to the right sorts of terms, it would be very exciting to bring them in so that we can take all of our molecules through phase three and give us optionality to to do an IPO or a trade sale. We'd always assumed we would keep it simple and just do a trade sale. So it's quite a nuanced answer, but if anyone else is out there and and has the choice, I'd, I'd probably stick to the more traditional investors, even if they screw you over a little bit on terms, <laughs> because at least you're then part of the traditional community. Can I ask just a quick question here, Ibs, which is you went, opted for non-traditional VC. What advice would you give to folks in your shoes who are trying to bring in a, a new assets, perhaps take a new philosophy to drug development? and may not garner the interest from like the big traditional venture capital funds? Like what, what advice would you give them and when, when they think about building their, their biotech? So the sort of objective answer is just have really good science, right? And obviously a good team is going to go with that good science. And then, you know, obviously like anything, there's just a lot of work and you've got to eventually find someone who will listen to you. And, and then I think it'll happen if you've got really good science. Sort of unofficial answer is, is, is network, right? It, it takes a long time to do drug development. And along the way, you, you build up a good network of people. And so inevitably, you will know people in the investment community and they will be able to take the time to actually listen to your story. And I think it's the convergence of those two things that I think is very important. Very quickly, so our lead program is in myotonic dystrophy. So this is distinct from muscular dystrophy, and it's, it's characterized by intellectual disability, autism, and in some cases, myotonia, so muscle weakness. So it's, it's a relatively rare condition, and our asset for that is in phase three, after some really encouraging phase two data. You know, we, we've had young adults who, for the first time, started to speak to their parents who uh, went to the toilet for the first time. It was very, very exciting what happened in phase two. So we're hopeful 
for phase three, and that will be starting in November. We have a program in phase one in both Rett syndrome and PTSD. It's the same molecule. So we can't tell you much about that yet, but the preclinical work is highly suggestive. I'll put it that way. And we're not struggling to get back as interested in that one. And then the final one, and I, and I, I deliberately leave this to last because I think it's fascinating what it says for biotech in 2050 is a drug for a very rare condition called Phelan-McDermott syndrome. It's the usual AMO thing. It's a rare condition of development, autism, et cetera. But the twist with this one is that in addition to the autism and intellectual disability, these children tend to have seizures, tend to have epilepsy. And a single infusion of this drug, we discovered that many of the patients just stopped having seizures. And these children typically had intractable epilepsy. So so they'd have regular seizures that didn't seem to respond to normal medicines. Now, that's cool. That's very cool if you have Phelan McDermott syndrome. But the reason I think it has read through to biotech in, in 20 or 30 years is because what does that mean for epilepsy more generally? You see, people with Phelan McDermott syndrome have an issue with a particular biochemical pathway of cell division, the rasmec erk pathway. And that pathway is highly implicated in cancer because it does cell division. And what would happen if someone has cancer, what do you do? You essentially mathematically model all the different types of markers, principally, of that particular cancer. Do you have this variant or that variant? And, and they're essentially a bunch of levers. And in combination, you get a whole constellation of different types of cancers, which on first instance looks like one cancer. Does, does that make sense? So you're, you're breaking it down into loads of subtypes. Yeah. I think this Phelan McDermott program is going along the same lines of, of what's happened to cancer in the last 20, 20 years or so. So I think in the future, psychiatry drugs like this, the patient will come in and then we'll subtype them. We'll say, no, no, you don't have autism. You have an issue in your rasmec erk pathway, or you have an issue in your GSK3 beta pathway, and therefore you need this molecule and that molecule, just like you see in chemotherapeutics. And that's my prediction, famous last words for 2050, that psychiatry will look like oncology today. My wife's a, a psychiatrist, and she often wonders about why there haven't been the same advancements in, in psychiatry as compared to, to oncology. It's a nuanced response, just given value creation in oncology compared to psychiatry, but I'm sure she's going to be really excited to hear that projection that you have. Well, Ibs, this was, a, this was an excellent conversation. Thank you for sharing uh, your very interesting background going from running drug dev to now being a co-founder and CEO of a biotech at AMO Pharma, and we look forward to continuing to, to track progress there. Great to meet you both, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great podcast you're putting together. I shall subscribe. <laughs> great. Take Looking care. forward to having you on again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.